Welcome to the Aesthetic City podcast. In this show, we aim to discover how to go forward and create a better, more beautiful and livable built environment. I'm Ruben Hansen, your host, founder of the Aesthetic City, a content platform with the mission to inspire people to make our cities, towns and landscapes a bit more livable and beautiful for the benefit of both humans and nature. Today, I have another inspiring guest. She's a consultant at a global business strategy firm by day. But late last year, she founded an organization called Street Level. With Street Level, the aim is to build a grassroots movement in Australia, being led by regular local people for more attractive and livable cities and buildings, while also trying to change things from the top down. I think her work is outstanding and a model for other people to follow in other countries. So please welcome, from Australia, Millie Main. Hello. So pleased to have you here. <laughs> How are oh, you doing? Pleased to, very well pleased to be here. Thank you. Yeah, we have met a couple of times and uh, we are in frequent contact actually through the classic planning stoa by Dr. Nir Buras. We have uh, yeah quite overlapping missions and views, but uh, yeah, very happy to have you finally on the show. Thank you. I'm pleased to represent the, uh, you know, down under um, peeps and cohort. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So um, yeah, let, let's just hop right in. Um, yeah, your background is not actually in architecture or planning, right? It's not. So I don't have a background in architecture or planning, which I think in many ways, um, you know, is a good thing. Um, yeah. So I am a bit of an outsider, um, but I guess I'm just like everybody else, you know. Um, I'm, an, I'm an onlooker and an observer and um, it doesn't take much. You just have to walk down the street. Um, so yeah, I, I think it, yep. that's that's something that a lot of people feel really, um, and and we wonder like what's happening with those architects? <laughs> what's happening? You know, <laughs> is something wrong? Are, are they okay? <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, you know, it's like any other, um, it's like another any other discipline, I guess. Like if you if you um, if you're really deep into something, sometimes it's hard to see from, you know, inside what may be going wrong or what, what may yep. be um, a problem for other people. And of course, with architecture, um, I guess the truism is that people think modern architecture is ugly. Um, and it's almost that, um, like, I think of that meme from The Simpsons, you know, that old man yells at cloud. It's like, that building looks like a milk carton. <laughs> and like, it's true, but um, like, like with anything in the internet era, once it has been said enough times, it passes into this big, massive opinion that, um, you know, exists and competes with other things. And, um, you know, I don't know, just it's, it's a bit hard to fight back against when um, the criticism has already been absorbed, I guess. And so, yeah, um, yeah the we're trying to, um, or I guess with street level, um, which is the organization that I yeah. founded to try to improve the built environment. Um, we wanted to s change the conversation and um, break the impasse um, and get non more non-professionals just like me um, and elevate their voices so that um, the professional architects and planners, many of whom, by the way, agree yeah. with us um, and are on our side and want the same things we want, um, could have a better conduit to people who are in the professions. And so the people in architecture and planning could hear what they're saying, hear the feedback and, and, and um, act on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So where, where did your passion for built environments come from in the first place? 
it's funny that you say the passion for the built environment because it's like uh, I guess it's like asking someone who goes to the beach like where did your passion for like yeah. you know, the <laughs> for existing in <laughs> in nature come from uh probably it's innate in some ways like yeah I mean I did grow up in um old old places um and you know I'm a believer in the phrase um it's not mm. good because it's old. It's old because it's good. Um, so I guess I can say I grew up in good places. Um, yeah. My family owned a secondhand bookshop um, and that was in a old building um, and it was a beautiful little quaint yeah. bookshop and yeah. they lived behind it and there was a courtyard in the middle of it. Um, and the same with the place I grew up in, you know, it was an old house on the top of a hill. Um, and I just wow. felt yep. a sense of peace and calm and um, serenity in older places compared to newer places, you know. Um, the experience of Perth in particular, the city where I come from, is, um, is uniquely hostile. It's, it's, I think it is, it's actually the longest yeah. city in the world um, and it's probably on par with Houston or something in terms of... Um, in terms yeah. of the, you know the, the the hostility of the built environment however in saying that the you know the beaches yeah. are beautiful and the and the bush is beautiful um it's just where this you know we've you know the city we've kind of fucked up um yeah. and so you can go on some you know you can get into a real um you can get into a real place of despair driving through perth it's a really um it's 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 it needs a lot of um it needs a lot of work um and so it's that duality it's knowing how good something can be and then also experiencing what it's like for frankly um the people without the means to live yep. in a leafy street in a beautiful heritage suburb which is most people um and i think that you know there's a huge equity issue mm. and it's the in um it's the in a f in unequal distribution of beauty um and yep. i think that you know that is actually something that um we're not we're not conscious of enough in its effects on people's yes. psychology and behavior and experience of the world, you know? Yeah. And mm. it's not being actively studied. Well, it, it is maybe being studied by some, but not on the extent that, yeah, it is perhaps way more important than we, uh, yeah. Oh, I think it's way more important. And I think that it's the stuff of the essence of life. You know, I think being able to... Yeah. Um, the the suburbs are an aberration um yeah. freeways and highways and concrete um expanses are an aberration and it's a experiment that we have no um you know is 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 the costs of it are unclear um and we're putting people into really weird weird situations that um are unprecedented mm -hmm. in human history yes. and possibly um inhumane to the point of uh you know it's inhumane and it's not something that we've caught up with yet in terms of the in inhumanity of it and the importance of restoring our built environment to a place that's pleasurable and conducive to strong human relationships and um, human yeah. flourishing. Did Australia literally copy uh, a lot of the urban planning yes. practices from the United States? from America, yeah. Yeah. Okay. American planning. Um, yeah. Zoning, zoning as well? Yeah. Yeah. So we have functional use-based zoning imported yeah. directly from America. Uh, and my in my city, <coughs> pardon me, um, <coughs> my city yeah. was a city that that was planned for the 
around the car so we never had like you living in amsterdam we never had we don't have thousands of years of no. wisdom embedded in the um embedded in the streets of the built environment we've 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 we live in a city designed for vehicles not people yeah um and the you know we had we did have some beautiful heritage buildings from the turn of the century but we had a um a moment in time around you know the the birth of modernism where people just kind of demolished 70 percent of them so we've lost a lot of them as well so that's also the same like the american uh yeah central business districts where they just cleared out entire yeah blocks to just build parking yeah parking and you know boxes and yeah um, yeah you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And could you please describe how the urban fabric of the typical Australian city was formed? It must be mostly late 19th century fabric, I guess. Mm, yes, that's right. Late so 19th century, turn of the century. I mean, Perth is t- now too, oh gosh, I, I think it's two million people. Um, but, you know, for most of the time it was a, it was just a country town, yeah. uh, you know, um, and somewhere like Melbourne. Well, at one point, Melbourne was, you know, the richest. Rich, at one point, Melbourne was the richest city in the world because of the gold rush. Um, yeah, and that legacy has left a. Um, Melbourne has a legacy of beautiful places and buildings, um, and then it has a retrofitted um, kind of auto vehicle oriented suburb heavy uh plan but it has a really great grid system that um has worked really well for urbanism in some of the older suburbs like north fitzroy fitzroy carlton richmond and all of the places in the inner city yeah yeah just more about street level you started it late last year could you describe Mm. what it does and why also you you thought I need to found this organization. Mm. So I had watched other groups emerge overseas and I would describe this as a global movement with different um, organizations in cities around the world all working to achieve similar things. But street level um, is basically a group of people who are really good friends from Australia and we got together. Um, I mean, the genesis came from me, but I very quickly met people who were just as passionate and just as um, dedicated. And, you know, we got um, thinking and we we um, were in different places. We we're in different states. Um, and so although I lead it, we have chapter leads in in Melbourne yeah. and Sydney and Brisbane. And 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 we you know australia is a really big country so it's and and our our planning jurisdictions are state-based so unlike the united kingdom and perhaps i don't know the netherlands we have as many planning departments as we have states and territories Uh, so it's you know quite important um that we have a um, a federated system where we each chapter of street level looks after our own members yeah that makes sense and in terms of what we work on um i mean we want to make Australian architecture. We want to make it more beautiful and aligned with people's preferences. And and so our hypothesis, and we haven't actually replicated some of the studies and research that's been done um, in you know in Europe and U- the UK and the United States. But all of that research shows that people prefer traditional architecture. Yeah. And we call that heritage architecture here. 
Um, but yeah. really, heritage is kind of a fake concept. Um, I don't know how strong it is in the Netherlands, but it's really strong here. Um, and it's basically a reaction to modernism. It's a reaction to the fact that um, architects um, abruptly stopped designing and building things that people thought were beautiful um, and people were rational and logical and they saw good things being replaced with bad things, ugly things. And so they thought, well, we've got to do something about this. And that's the heritage movement. Yeah. And it's really strong here. They actually have done a really good oh. job. Um, yeah. But it is a bit of a double-edged sword because heritage is a museum for architecture. Yeah. It is all about preservation and it's all about almost putting a, it's almost like history stopped or, the, or ar traditional architecture stopped. Um, and there's a really big mental block we have to doing it again. It's almost like, oh no, that's, that's a part of the past. And because of progress and technological progress and design progress, and because we must constantly be innovating, we can't return to that. Whereas I think that's actually a bit of a, um, a, it's a category error. I think people are making, yeah. um, it's an inability to see uh, a different type of future that could have ha could have could just yeah. as e easily have happened, and actually something that we want to happen now. Exactly. This this is mm. also exactly my view on uh, the whole progress. Yeah, question. So mm. is progress something that looks futuristic and always makes use of the latest technology, or is progress actually measured in w the well-being of people? Uh, instead of just some very external, uh, superficial mm. elements, uh, <laughs> mm, because we, we w yeah, right. We want a better future instead of just That's a future right. that looks like a science fiction novel. But well, I'm mm, a fan of the ch the definition of G.K. Chesterton's um, um, comments on progress, which were, I mean, I can't remember verbatim, but true progress is having a. Uh, a goal or a milestone or something that you aspire to and want to achieve and and setting out to achieve that um and progressing towards it and it, you know the, the 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 version of progress that we seem to um seem to be um applying now yep. is constantly changing what that is you know we think progress is constantly changing where we're going and the fact that we have to um it's never enough right the um the goal that we had yeah. is not is not good enough or pure enough or um you know the, the there's this idea that um i mean this yeah. isn't limited to architecture but um no. you know that we will never have never achieved what we set out to we have to keep creating new goals to um to achieve um and so with architecture and and planning i think I think the the analogy is, um, you know, yeah, constantly innovate, constant innovation, and trying new things, and the and the very weird set of circumstances where we threw out, I mean, so much wisdom and so much tradition, and 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 that was replaced by the individual ego and individual creativity of each new person who has probably only been on the world for 22 years when they get to university. And so I don't know many, I don't know about you, I know some you know pretty smart and cool 22 year olds, but a lot of them are pretty banal. I mean, just like I was when I was 22, you know, I wouldn't think of myself as having been particularly wise or, um, 
you know, I didn't know much. Yeah. <laughs> um, and to expect so much of people is actually really unfair and it, it, it buys into a worldview that's really all about winners and losers as well, I think, like the celebrities yeah. and the losers and um, only some people can be these amazing accomplished architects and get on the cover of magazines and every, everyone else ends up kind of doing, um, you know, just yeah. trying to make a buck, I guess. <laughs> Endlessly drawing uh, details in AutoCAD. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I, I can imagine um, nowadays we don't classically train our architects anymore and don't give them the fundamentals uh, which architects all in history have gotten until the 20th century and then we kind of... But that's just my view. Uh, I don't know what no, you I mean, think about that. Well, I think that they... Um, you know, from what, from what I know, because we, by the way, have quite a few... I mean, this is where it does get a little bit... Um, tricky because in no way would I ever want to um, alienate anyone who is an architect because I actually think they're the ones that are the most screwed over by this whole thing we have a lot of architects um, in our organization um, I might have already mentioned that but we you know yeah. um, I, I have people coming and 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 saying like I want to learn about this um, and and yeah we struggle to have somewhere to send them but I mean to your question I mean they probably learn the I'm assuming they learn the fundamentals um, about how to hold a roof up I'd hope but definitely course, not yeah. somebody said to me look I learned I had this lecturer and he actually taught us about the orders and um, but he yeah. was a practicing modernist architect. And I think people probably do learn about it. But oh, I think what happens now is that to the extent it's taught, it's taught as one option among a variety of equally valid and interesting options, including, um, you know, the things that come out of your own brain. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't teach it in a coherent story that elevates, um, you know, the the you know, based on, I guess, how much knowledge there is to learn, I would say that the, you know, the curriculums are probably way too oriented towards um, towards what we would describe as modernist, but they would just describe as um, contemporary architecture or just architecture. Yeah. Um, and this is not unusual and it happens in other domains and disciplines. I mean, when I studied a Bachelor of Arts, which is like a liberal arts degree, it was also incoherent and unstructured and um, yeah. allowed a 17-year-old to decide what was important for them to learn out of the whole history of human knowledge. Um, so, you know, you could... Yeah. You would... Ba the, the effect of that was basically learning um, a lot of, um, you know, post-structuralist and post-modern theory without actually yeah. knowing the genesis of what those people were reacting to. So you didn't study uh, the Bible and Aristotle and, um, you know, German philosophy before <laughs> learning about yeah. these, you know, reactionaries in yeah. the 80s in America. I mean, it's such a stupid, um, you yeah. know, kind of education. Um, I actually want my money back if anyone's listening. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I had to go and learn all these things myself. And so a lot of architects do as well because they just got shortchanged by the universities who um, are relativists, um, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I strongly recognize it from my own study. I, I've already, I think, mentioned this a couple of times in the podcast, but just how in my urbanism master, I kind of missed the part where we just just kind of copy older forms of urban structure to really understand them, study them, how they work before we started focusing on questions and the, the problems of our times, which are climate adaptability, etc. Mm. 
uh, just yeah. already jumping towards the, well, in your case, the postmodernist theories. In our case, we just jumped to the sustainability agenda. Well, we did not really learn, hey, uh, what did, well, uh, a Dutch Dutch urban designer, Berlage, do, for example? How did they design their blocks and really go in depth and just, yeah. I can imagine how much, um, how much they would know about... Um I mean, I have heard about, you know, the Amsterdam and the unique approach they have to their managing their bodies of water and, and flooding. Yeah. And um, I can imagine how much there would be to learn there. Sure, That's and probably the, yeah. about sustainability. Yeah, and uh, water knowledge is also the knowledge we as a country kind of export. It's it's just a product. It's a very strong focus of, uh, yeah, my university was to really teach us all about water. And you could even specialize further in that field because there's a lot of cities in coastal places which will deal with sea level increases. Mm. And we need to learn how to adapt to it. If you're going to create super resilient coastal cities, but if it will also be an ugly dystopian hellscape where mm. people don't want to live and it will turn into a ghetto 30 years later, then yeah, what have you learned? Yeah, and look, there's um, one more comment on that. And then I just wanted to add something, one more thing to the education Topic. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I like, you know, there's uh, there's a um, kind of school of thought in urbanism that I would describe as kind of the Jane Jacobs school of urbanism. And, yeah. Um, and you know, you find a lot of people who are kind of um, who are fans of Nassim Taleb that that um, that think along these lines of, I guess, m maybe what would be described as anti fragility, or you know. Um, something that is um yeah. resistant to get you know is becomes more resistant to sh to shocks um as it experiences them and i guess cities are a perfect example of that and definitely we're creating really really fragile cities especially if you can um if you think of some of the places that are suffer going to suffer from problems with with water availability and yeah. um their interaction with the surrounding environment um yeah, you know yeah. i'm thinking of china where they you know where they have kind of controlled the environment to such an extent that it's hard to see that it won't bite back at some point um and the best cities you know they do have shocks but they're able to recover from them without being completely and catastrophically blown up i don't mean that literally um and so i find that thinking really interesting um i don't think it's a I don't think it's enough. I don't think just acknowledging the the need for resilience is enough. Um, I think, you know, I would say that a more classical and holistic approach is something yeah. that um, when it comes to street level that we would advocate for. But, um, you know, that's that's something I'm um, something I'm always thinking about is that the, the intersection of that um those those ideas. Another yeah. thing that I wanted to just add to the education yeah. thing is, look, I think i'm so optimistic about this i really am because i think it's just a winner you know it's actually very this is a very uh, no it's a, like a no-brainer you know there yeah. are barriers to it but you know if you're so i'm gonna speak to australians because um i haven't left this country in so long i don't even remember what it's like mm -hmm. to um go other places um um because of because of you know all of the border closures we had um but oh man yeah you can walk through a building like the Victorian State Library and just experience the glory and experience the sense of uh, 
you know, it makes your soul just soar. It's, it's you know, it has a beautiful reading room with this um, atrium that's um, pile that is at the end, at the top of, um, you know, a, a, um, a room that's that's kind of beautifully and ornately decorated. Yeah. And it just is so incomparable to anything else that's been built in the last couple of decades, despite a library being a kind of um, temple of knowledge and one of the most important parts of our civil society. Yeah. And there's just no way that we're competing against that. If this were a consumer um I guess consumer product that we were going to choose one or the other everybody would go for what we're talking about there's maybe a little bit more cost associated but with associated with it but not as much as you would think um and so I'm just I just think that um you know get on this get on this bandwagon now because we're on to a winner yeah (laughs) yeah I strongly agree I really think um something is stirring (laughs) and and people are you know um uh i think collectively realizing that um there is another way forward and that we actually can do it like that and now people are finding the courage well like you have done with street level that you actually bring that action into uh reality yeah well i mean the whole um, the whole point is to have some real world built environment impact, and we're working towards it. Um, so watch this space. Yeah, yeah, and and what I also noticed with again returning to the education point that there's a lot of new summer schools beginning this year, and a lot of them are not founded by universities, but just they kind of pop up. Uh, so it's also some sort of bottom up form of education. So I was wondering if yeah, do you want to get mixed in this education part? We would what we want as many Australians as possible to be educated in traditional architecture and and classical town planning, classic planning, um, and I guess you could say good urbanism. Um, there's no local options for it, unfortunately, but I mm. believe that there are people working towards that. So. Um, the Prince's Trust um, has to be commended for its work in Australia. So they're the they're yeah. they're, they're the local um, they're the local kind of branch of the Prince's Foundation, and His yeah. Royal Highness Prince Charles has done yeah. good work internationally. But he actually does stuff in Australia. His foundation, you know, being as we are part of the Commonwealth, yeah. And I, you know, they've done some work with the university here on in- enduring design, as they call it. Um, and I think worked with a group of university students um, who, for the first time, laid their hands on some bricks and some <laughs> plaster and started actually yeah. learning, you know, the building arts, which is really cool. And, um, you know, who knows? I think that, you know, if they can keep um, doing what they're doing, then we'll, we may have something local soon, which would be great. Other than that, um, we're trying to send people to um, places like the Classic Planning Academy based in yep. Washington, D.C. Um, there's other options. So I know that the Aesthetic City in Interbound in, you know, uh, you know, you guys had a summer school yep. and there's also Engelsberg and I'm aware of a couple of other ones. Obviously, it would be better to have full university courses and not yeah. summer schools. It's great to be able to go and um, spend spend an um, intensive period with other people doing something that you love but yeah. it's a little bit uneconomical for australians and it's a 
you know yeah. like it's like two days to get anywhere yeah yeah it's it's so far away it's it's really uh yeah the distance is really an issue i can imagine but we actually have yeah. somebody doing the classic planning academy who's waking up at 2 a.m um <laughs> to do the classes which are oh good wow <laughs> yeah yeah it's also it's really hard to accommodate for australian students as well um and yeah it, it's 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 a shame so i think like a local summer school or a local yeah real university option would be yeah outstanding mm. but I, I i think i'm also an optimist on the the, the part of education i do think even that once it happens that there will be uh like there will be such a um motivated group of students coming out of those first years i think it will be yeah transformative like if it happens mm. here in the netherlands or wherever uh, because you already see it with notre dame university uh yeah. these people are on fire you know mm-hmm. um so yeah that's really yeah i think I that agree. will happen as well in other countries yeah i think so and my hypothesis is that you have to work on both the supply side and the demand side so you have to make sure that there are going to be people to meet the need but then i think maybe even more important is to is to um help the market understand people's preferences yeah and make it easier for developers and builders and um, governments where, you know, where relevant to build better, design better and design in line with what people want, which at the moment, I mean, there's a lot of room to improve. I'll put it that way. Um, and so we're trying to work with, with yeah. you know, on the commercial aspects of the um, development industry and planning to share our knowledge share what we know about what's happening overseas um and make the commercial case and then yeah so and then policy and regulation as well so changing those settings and we think that the the mix of those things will make the change and how do you do that exactly to to uh do you find interested parties in the commercial real estate honestly i find greeks and italians (laughs) (laughs) and so what i mean by that is australia had a really strong movement of immigrants um after world war ii but continuing on you know we're definitely a multicultural country um and for anyone that's ever been to australia you'll know that we have great coffee we have great conti rolls if you're in perth we have um (laughs) you know great Italian restaurants in Melbourne. Um, We have, you know, um, successive waves of migrants that have come here and built their lives with their families. Um, And, you know, too often, and I'm conscious I've just done this, you know, we, um, we accept them, we accept their food, but like any country that accepts waves of immigrants, it's often easier for the second generation to integrate and, um, and, the other part of street level, I haven't, ex- you know, this is not something that we've, um, that I've, I've written about yet or anything, but one of the things that I've just been marinating on is how fitting it is for Australia because so many migrants come here and they just deeply yearn for the intimacy of the villages and places that they came from. And they, it is a wound. It's a huge wound that um just like you they come here and the only option really for anyone migrant or not is to live in the suburbs 
and it's just alienating. Um, yeah. It's not com- it's 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 not conducive to strong community bonds. It makes it harder to meet people. It makes you know you don't know the language. It's so different from what they know, and it's actually aberrant. And you know they're right. What they did back home was right, and they come here and they suffer for it. Um, this is a bit of a tangent, but you know because we are yeah. a multicultural country, one of our duties to the society we live in is both to learn from the people who come from places that do it better um and um you know perhaps try different ways to help people integrate um yeah that that are that are premised on the built environment um i would love to see that but anyway where i was going with that is you know the greeks and italians always understand me they get it I take photos to them and they're just like, this is perfect. This is perfect. You know, (laughs) I will meet like developers who definitely, they're not on, you know, they're not on Twitter. Um, They're just like, you know, blokes who do developments. And um, like, uh, look, I I think that the people who are from a Mediterranean background immediately get what I'm talking about. Um, And so (laughs) they respond really well to it. Um, This is a very long way of saying that... um, of saying that um they're going to developers who you know have a commercial interest and saying hey we know that there's a a market need for this um nobody's doing it it's possible i know the suppliers um the architects are this this person this person this person and this person uh the, the local council would really love it if you did this it may actually be easier to get local planning approvals for what you're doing because people prefer it um, and we have a really big yeah. battle in Australia about density because we are, the, you know, policy settings are trying to reduce urban sprawl. Uh, but of, but a lot of the time the, the answers to that, are whether they're high or medium density, are ugly and, and inappropriate and yeah. frankly insulting to the people that live in an area. And so you get this nimbyism. Yeah. And... Um, we wanted we what we one of the things that street level is trying to do is introduce you know gent gentle beautiful density and um yeah frankly developers who get in on this first i think are gonna um see the benefits of it because wherever there's a deep human need there's money to be made yeah um, and ideally th- that balanced out with um a sense of civic goodness yeah and and have you had success so far with uh yeah working with developers towards yeah, some some new. Yeah, well, we have we've had success in the um, response in the you know um, the reaction in terms of do we have any like um, do we have any projects in development? We do. So um, street level itself is a not for profit, but um, so we're not a development company, but um, we are working with developers to help them. Um, connect to the right sources of talent and yeah. understand what traditional, authentic traditional architecture is, um, and help you know celebrate their successes when they happen. Um, and since I started this, I have you know we have made connections with responsible developers who we think um, you know probably in ten years yeah. are gonna we'll look back and we'll say well those were the first ones that did it and you know yeah yeah. Mm. That I think that's an excellent uh, way of doing things. Um, mm. And I really wonder if that model could be copied to other countries as well. Because, uh, yeah, just re- returning to um, to street level. So it's not only in gra- grassroots organization. It almost sounds like you're also using it as a way to yeah spread information uh, and mm. also... Uh, 
uh, yeah, inspire or even incentivize developers to uh, do it a different way. Is that right? And government and policy. And government things, policy. Yeah. Are you yep. also working and on policy pieces or? Like yeah, we are. So, um, yes, we are. So it's it's it is tricky here because there's so many different jurisdictions. Um, yeah. We've got states and territories and different contexts and it's always a, tr a challenge here but um we do we want to um we want to introduce long-term planning to australian cities so we want to um we want to change the planning system pretty fundamentally um yeah. and we have a really moonshot goal here to implement 100 year plans for at least three cities by um in the next five years and that means um, backing away from from the, the the approaches and frameworks we're currently using, which tend to just double down on the fail failures we've had in the past and make them worse. Yeah. Um, and so that will entail. Um, I mean, the kind of change we're talking about has to unfold over many years, and there's a lot of work involved with it. Um, and I could go in more into that if you like, um, but that's one front we're working on. And another front is um, working with local governments because in Australia, local governments are the ones that yeah. usually have control over planning permissions. And so we want to help equip them with the right tools and the right, um, the right research to um, define different standards for what people want in their local area so you know that involves liaising yeah. with local communities helping share knowledge from overseas um, and share examples that we think people would really respond well to of traditional architecture um, and and saying to local councils hey you know a part of a big part of your job is fighting off crappy ugly development what if we could make this easier for you by helping you define for developers what this place wants what this town and what these people want um and be able to communicate that to developers who come to you and yeah um yeah and how do you connect how do you, okay so two questions how do you mm. uh measure that um yeah desire amongst uh Residents. Preferences. Preferences, yeah. yeah. What, what they want. And do you actually do research in the field? And then how do you uh, yeah, capture these developers? Mm. So we're doing it in two ways. One is just online polls. Um, we are preparing at the moment a, a poll that will be a more large and national um, ongoing piece of research that we can use in all of the different projects that we work on. But um, I also just did a little poll. I put it on my iPad. I went down to the local shops and yeah. just literally stood there trying to get people to do it, um, which is a great way to meet people in the place that you live, understand <laughs> you know them a little better. You get into conversations that are really interesting. Um, and, um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd recommend if anybody's, you know, if anybody's into this stuff, it's, it's a really cool thing to do. I think that's a very uh, cool and effective way to actually measure it. And uh, these online polls, how do you gain the people to actually fill out these polls? And uh, how do you organize such a thing? Mm. Australia has a pretty good... Um, 
we have a strong history of grassroots political movements. Okay. So there are organization advocacy organizations who've been really successful in what I would call, you know, mass movements that are um, kind of cultivated online. I guess people would sometimes dismissively call that clicktivism. One of the things we're doing because yeah. we have this um, we have this, this structure right with with chapter leads in different states is to get those people in working with. So we have members. Maybe I didn't mention this before, but each yep. chapter has members that live in that local area, and so we want to activate our members. Yeah. Um. It's 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 literally you know, um, bringing people over to the cause equipping them with the tools they need yeah. and sending them out in their local area to you know advocate for what we believe in share what's happening internationally showing people pictures frankly i mean this is the um the problem with a podcast is that i can't quite tell people who aren't in this um kind of um uh, who are just listening and don't have the images in front of them exactly yeah. what we're talking about. But I would really encourage people to go to the Aesthetic City Twitter, have a look at the kinds of in, uh, examples that we're talking about, have a yeah. look, and you'll see what I'm talking about, right? But we, we put those images in people's hands and we just say, hey, we want you to have a conversation with your neighbours, your friends, your family, ask them what they like, um, yeah. you know, just start a conversation. And... I'm not going to be able to personally approach everyone in Australia. Um, maybe in, you know, I could definitely in Perth, it's still like a little country town. Everybody knows yeah. each other. And, um, but yeah, we have to, um, we have to make sure that we have that, those troops, because those little troops of people are going to be the ones who get that message going. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, with street level, have you reached a lot of municipalities yet? Or are still some blank points yeah, on the map? No. We still have some places that we need leads for. So South Australia, Tasmania, ACT, Northern Territory. If you're listening. <laughs> yeah. Listeners uh, yeah, do contact. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah, about the Australian context. You write some excellent articles on LinkedIn, um, and yeah, some of them contain very interesting case studies, like Jin D, for example. And that was just a beautiful piece on yeah the value of beautiful walkable places uh, with a very close knit community vibe going on. And uh, mm. yeah, so can you tell a bit about your visit to Jin D and what you saw there and what we could maybe learn from it? Yeah. Yep. Um, so Jindi is a development that is, um, that was inspired by Seaside in Florida. So, um, yeah. Andres Duani's DPZ co-design, um, uh, was actually flew out here multiple times, I think, to run design charrettes. Um, and mm -hmm. that was precipitated by the, the developer who did Jindi being really inspired by going out to Seaside and seeing what it was like. Um, and it was a real passion project. Perth has the most beautiful beaches. It's just so divine. Yeah. It's like better. It's like just as good as going to some of those beautiful, you know, Mediterranean, Greek, really just clear water. And it's 
the kind of thing that um, anyone would just love, you know. So that yeah. it's got that going for it because it's in just a beautiful natural environment. Um, but it's been in the in in development for twenty years, so it wasn't a light undertaking. Uh, it's the first new urbanist development in Australia, so like some other new urbanist developments um it's still car dependent it's really far from the city um it's a new estate um so it is in some ways a new suburb but it's a new suburb done really really well um and the 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 design for it was based on some of our best historic towns and villages so we have a a port city called Fremantle that's um, beautiful beautiful uh, good local example of urbanism um, with um, um, a a local vernacular from the local limestone Um, and I mean anyone um, kind of listening if you kind of look up Fremantle and look at some of the images of it um, you'll probably be able to see what I'm talking about and then we have this little holiday island that's a really um, special, important place to a lot of people in Perth. A lot of us spent our childhoods there. Um, it's a really, it's still very untouched by, yeah. um, you wow. know, development. And so, it, a lot of the holiday vill- kind of villas and stuff are still owned by a government authority. And it's just a really perfect place. And um, a little exa- island of kind of urbanism just off our coast um, and there's no cars so bikes rule which is probably one of the reasons why it's so good and has remained so good and so Jindy exemplifies the best parts of these places yeah um, and I mean other than anything you know I think it's going to be a great investment um, it's probably like other um, urbanist developments going to increase more than the surrounding suburbs so i think the number i've heard somewhere is you know 15 to 30 percent more um and um you know i did say to my husband like but you should we should we need to get in on this because i think it's going to be really in 20 years when the landscaping matures and it becomes more established it's like that fine wine you know you've got to give it time to develop because just when something's just new it's never quite as good um that that oldness always is that patina of age adds so much charm but it's going. Uh, I, I believe this place is going to be much better. I mean, um, some of the features that are a bit different are unlike m- yeah. most, the majority of other places. So the houses don't have setbacks; they come right up to the street with the veranda. Very neighbourly, very collegial. People still have cars, but they're tucked away in garages behind the um, behind the houses. Um, there's laneways and there's lots of really interesting nooks and crannies and points of interest that you can kind of wind your way through. So I definitely, I think this is going to yeah. be the kind of place that kids can still ride their bikes around. And um, it it is, um, it's hard to describe because it's just a very Australian thing, but um, yeah. like anywhere else in the world, kids have stopped kind of um, have, have stopped. They, they don't, they no longer have free reign over the streets, which is a really sad thing and yeah. something that we need to bring back. Yeah, that's also a thing here, uh, which is which is special about, yeah, uh, the Netherlands because as a child you mm. can just roam around with your bike yeah. and we have great yeah pedestrian infrastructure as well. So walking, cycling, it's it's kind of natural here, but in these huge uh, suburbs, it's completely unnatural in some way. You need a car to just get around and go to your mm. your friend who lives just in another 
enclave and uh, <laughs> absolutely some places are it's just bizarre it's like we are, we've become so dependent on these cars that it's um yeah i mean the car owns us you know yeah yeah and um so you you briefly mentioned um 100 year plans and i think that's an interesting point to mm. come back on because uh, of course jindy is a smaller um yeah a smaller place more a bit more in the periphery and beautiful in a beautiful nature of environment but for bigger cities uh, perhaps the 100 year plan is a better uh yeah way of approaching things could you tell a little bit about what it entails and how you could use it and what you're doing with it hmm. so 100 year plans are uh, a methodology developed by the classic planning institute and dr near Boras. um yeah. and you know, we work closely with the Institute. Um, and I think you mentioned at the start, we're all very friendly. Yeah. Um, a hundred year plan is a way of thinking about planning that liberates it from short term political cycles um, and enables big, you know, larger changes to happen because it happens, you know, it obviously unfolds over a longer time scale. So let me start from the actual, yeah. I guess, you know, the methodology itself. Um, it's based on the wisdom generated over thousands of years in the world's best cities like Paris, Vienna, Kyoto and Lisbon. Um, and actually the, um, the Institute's founder visited a hundred or more cities in researching this. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a lot's gone into it. Um, and it's, it's fundamentally different from the approach we have to planning now, which often divides a city up into different uses. Mm -hmm. The problem with dividing a city up into uses um, is that the use that you define now is not necessarily going to be the use in the future. And it's also really um, kind of, it's, it's really unpleasant, I guess, to... Yeah live in a place that's just home on home on home on home and the suburbs is a really weird thing you know because um a suburb was originally conceived as kind of a refuge from the city and a refuge from the industrial um uh well from the from industry right and some yeah. of the ill effects of it um but it maybe was you know i mean not maybe definitely was um was perverted along the way because it's quite a it's quite a inappropriate form of of um, of living where you're you're not quite in the city but you're not quite in the country. Yeah, it's just kind of this endlessly growing mass of um, you know of of homes, and it's just it never existed before and probably shouldn't exist. A um, hundred year plans. One of the features of them is they have a really clear distinction between town and country. What's town? What's country? You know, it's one or the other. Maybe you might have your villa out in the countryside. Um, maybe the, inside your town, um, you know, you have um, lot allocations that allow for backyards or have 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 larger, you know, um, have larger spaces. It's not like you know everyone has to be in a six-story building and everyone's. You know, Australians would find that very oppressive. Yeah. You know, people here they they need their outdoors, and fair enough, it's a pretty big place. Um, but that distinction between town and country is, I understand, a really important one. Um, 
the yep. genius loci is a really important yep. one. So planning now does not begin from a place of um, understanding the unique aspects of the natural environment in a, um, in a holistic way. In fact, we probably don't even think about it much anymore. Um, we're so embedded in this system of you know action and reaction and um yep. and there's so much like leg- there's so much regulation like there's thousands and thousands of pages in some cities so it's almost like such a complex system you make one change you have no idea how it's going to affect other things um and so a, a hundred year plan would effectively challenge all of this all of this yep. regulation and just say no actually we, we keep doubling down on something that's not working and we need something fundamentally different yep. um, and that something fundamentally different starts with genius loci the magic of a place um, how do the you know um, what are the undulations of the topography where are the mountains what's the aspect of um, what what is the you know um what is the wind like when it comes from this direction where should the where should we put our um, most important buildings because that's important for where they should be in the environment um and and look there there are more principles but um it's 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 it comes from um it comes from a completely different philosophy and worldview yeah and I, i can imagine that such a strong uh, outline for such a long-term, uh, yeah, such a long-term vision can be very helpful in case it's not yet there uh, mm. to just, yeah, base your policies on. Because if it's just focused on solving temporary local problems, which it often mm. is, then we just get mm. a maze of uh, regulations that don't really make sense anymore after twenty years. Uh, just yeah. are laying around or being misused or uh, <laughs> well if you yeah. have a strong visual and uh, yeah just a strong vision for a place that actually resonates with the local customs and the local environment I can imagine that is a very good template to build your city out on and I do mm. agree that if you want to see a very good example of a clear distinction between country and city is Spain where cities are extremely mm. compact and sometimes you have just these apartment blocks they're r- sitting right at the edge of the city where the country begins and, and like literal rolling fields and the typical Spanish countryside but um, here in Netherlands and yeah I guess also in American cities especially uh, Australia yeah with the, <laughs> the suburbs it's just such a oh, waste I've, well that's one of the things I've learned it's, it sounds counterintuitive actually to the modern sensibility you know limits are important walls are important you need to define the boundaries of something i think we love tearing down shit down you know i don't know when you're um when you're learning about the 20th century um and you're becoming an adolescent and you learn about punk rock and you learn about um you know being anti-establishment and you think let's you know let's tear everything down the problem with is that we it's just becoming so decadent um and i think that young people can see that now they see that everything that can be torn down has has been torn down and actually it's time to rebuild yeah um and the first thing to build is a wall um one of my other favorite chesterton quotes is you know if you see a wall don't tear it down unless you know why it's there yeah um yeah (laughs) Yeah, it's really, uh, yeah, the wall is, is, it has very, it's very stigmatized. People have very negative, uh, be- of course, because of Trump's border wall and 
negative ideas about it, but um, maybe a wall, yeah. <laughs> well, look, I guess the barrier of a city just used to be the, these barriers didn't necessarily always come up because somebody thought, oh, let's just put it here. I guess it would have been the natural limit of how far somebody could walk or whatever. I mean, you know, yeah. um, I'm sure that defense was one reason and that there, there are others. Um, but we need them now because otherwise we just don't know where the city ends and they just keep going and yeah. then the people who live out there are miserable and they're really disadvantaged. Um, and of course, one more thing about 100-year plans. So yeah. they have traditional architecture um, and this is, you know, again, Classic Planning Institute and the art of classic planning is the book if people are interested um, to learn more. But um, there's the... the, the um, I guess the the motto is that there's no good urbanism without good architecture and that's yeah. something I think we both believe in but this is a different movement from the new urbanism um, movement um, which has had its successes and its um, you know it, it sh its accomplishments but um, yeah I think I think our cities are uh, they they need they need more holistic solutions or yeah. at least that's the way that's the way i'm thinking at the moment yeah. yeah yeah because yeah new urbanism does does not always lead to uh super attractive places <laughs> better right. places I mean, but yeah. yeah that's right i think um some examples are really good some examples you know they um they're less good I think everyone's just asking the same questions though it's not really a tribalism thing it's not like hey you do this and i do that it's more uh things don't seem to be improving um how can we really change this um to you know it's hard to change anything now because i don't know everything seems so fractious and it seems hard to unite people but yeah. the thing about a hundred year plan i guess is that it has to have everything you can't have infrastructure divorced from human pleasure enjoyment and community and relationships you can't build roads because you need to get things from a to b it's a bad way to think about how to build a city yeah you know if you're if you're um transport oriented and you do and you let transport planners define what your city is going to be like then you will have a city designed around <laughs> transport yeah. which is like why are we here are we all here to get more shit from amazon and we all here to get you know I don't know, yeah. to be able to kind of like transport yeah. ourselves from one point to another. Like, no, we're here to have strong relationships with other people and yeah. to, you know. They will they will see a street as just a means to get from point A to point B. But a street mm. is, is more, is so much more than a street. It's not only a transport function. It is a place to meet. It is a place to stroll, to wander, to, I don't know, uh, light a cigarette, to talk to your neighbor, um, yeah. to have, <laughs> to watch, to sit on the curb and, and just watch people walk by. And, uh, right. and that is, uh, that's also, I think in here in the Netherlands, you have some extremely functionalist planned towns where they mm -hmm. uh, divided all the traffic streams and they have just these roads, but they're only for cars. Mm -hmm. And then you have the cycling infrastructure which is completely separated and uh, mm -hmm. often also the, the, yeah, just the, the pedestrian uh, zones are often next to the cycling paths or just interwoven with all the, the houses. But mm. uh, they did away with the street and that's a very, I think, modernist thing to do. And now, of course, streets have reappeared and they're more. But I think we still need to get back to the point where the street is really a place again. Um, and yeah, this holistic idea, that's the whole 
that's the secret, I think, like you said. Um, and I think we're kind of just really, we're micromanagers or everybody kind of, anybody who gets their hands, to be honest, I think one of the root causes of this is we've just got too many people trying to do too many good things. And when yeah. I say that, I mean, I think we just find it really hard to chill the fuck out, you know, um, <laughs> not try to control every single little thing. You know, we've got so many managers. I don't know if you've read that David oh. Graeber book about, um, you know, bullshit jobs, but everybody needs a university degree now. There's elite is growing. More and more people need salaries to pay their huge mortgages. And all of a sudden yeah. the public service has grown so big that um, you've got... <sighs> <laughs> thousands of planners they need something to do well what else better to do than apply my knowledge by trying to problem solve well i mean actually sometimes it's better to leave things and not try to problem solve every yeah. little thing and so that's when you get these streets where it's like you know some traffic engineers d d divided <laughs> everything up and then of course you go to europe and you've just got this cobblestone street uh, and nobody's dividing anything. It's just like the moped runs down it and, <laughs> yeah. you know, the drunk students stumble down it. And um, and it actually just works because people can kind of figure things out, right? Um, but anyway, that's another. Yeah, yeah, but I, I think that's a <laughs> wonderful thing. And uh, yeah, 100% agree. I think the street mm. is another episode worthy topic, um, mm. which is, I mean, the street is such a wonderful thing. But I think to close off, two last nice questions. So do you have a favorite building or building style? Or is it all just, if it has some qualities, it's good for you? Hmm. I'm going to have to say a... Um we have terrace houses in Australia. And they're, they're always quite... Um they can often be quite drafty and, um you know, they would... <laughs> They weren't built very well for the climate. Australians aren't very good at insulating. Europeans always come here and say, I've never been colder because <laughs> <laughs> it gets really cold, but we don't plan properly for it. Um, but look, I love walking down some of the streets in Melbourne with um, the Victorian terrace houses with their um, yeah. you know beautiful balconies with wrought iron balustrades. Um, they're great places to hang out. Um, a simple, beautiful townhouse with like a old climber growing up at like a piece of ivy or something, um, you know, brick, simple, just sitting there, not offending anybody, yeah. you know, being a good neighbor. That's my perfect building. Yeah. My, my perfect building is within a, you know, a street that um, people talk to each other on. Yeah, just respecting its neighbors often you see in front of those buildings, those little um, tweaks the owners made to really make their own, like a little chair or a, a you know, a, yeah. a potted plant. And I think those yeah. are signs that something good is happening at those places. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so to finish off, do you have yeah. any yeah last message to our audience or any last words of inspiration or yeah, how could people make the world a better place? And a more beautiful yeah, place. Yeah, just if you care about this, just start asking people what they think. Um, you know, you don't have to tell them what you think, but just say, hey, why do you think that buildings used to be so much more beautiful than they used to be? What's happening? Um, and they'll tell you what they think and um, they'll tell you what they think, of how they feel about the buildings around them. Um, and, you know, if you get the opportunity, tell them about this movement because um, it is a movement and um, 
share with them some of the examples and if they're interested in it tell them you can you know we're doing this um get them involved um because ultimately i think one of the problems with 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 design or you know we can say architecture and planning and i don't want to keep taking shots of them because i feel kind of bad but like you know it's too insular and it's true the elites are too protective over their professional domain um and they're too fancy and too like you know um uh, kind of myopic we need to open this up massively and just start involving the average everyday person in design um design just did not used to be something that was um i mean definitely used to be the domain of the elites don't get me wrong but there was no pride and arrogance um that there was no pride and arrogance that that actually overpowered that civic duty i guess i'm sure lots of them were proud and arrogant but um what I'm trying to say, I guess it's a little bit long-winded, is you know, if if the normal a- average everyday person like your mom, talk to your mom about it, yeah, you know, tell people about it. That's my yeah, yeah. yeah. I could uh, fully agree, and yeah, f- from from my <laughs> perspective, it's it's uh, it's really that normal people often think they don't have any influence, and that the experts will know what they're doing, but mm. um, maybe. Maybe the emperor has no clothes. Maybe the experts don't <laughs> yeah. know what they're doing. Yeah. Well, I think that's a beautiful quote to end this episode. Thank you so much, Mili. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Aesthetic City podcast. You can find more information about Street Level on www.streetlevelaustralia.org. For my Australian listeners, don't hesitate and join a chapter. Do you live in a region in Australia without a chapter and you feel ambitious? you're kindly invited to start your own chapter. With The Aesthetic City, we hope to achieve lasting impact, but we do need support. So if you really like the mission of The Aesthetic City, consider supporting us as a patron. The Aesthetic City wants to grow and offer even more content. And with enough patrons, this continuation and further growth will be possible. And it's not for nothing, of course, because patrons receive early releases, exclusive content, and access to the community. Find the Patreon link in the description below. If you liked this episode, please consider giving it a favorable review on Apple or Spotify. Find more information about this platform on theaestheticcd.com or follow our Twitter page. I hope to see you back soon. Thanks for listening. Until next time.